here with Jim, uh, Deacon Jim Vargas. You're the president and CEO of St. Joe's Villages. Father Joe's Villages, yes. Oh, Father Joe's. He Father may Joe's. be a saint one day, but right now it's just <laughs> Father Joe's Villages. <laughs> and you were telling me your organization has like 450 employees. Yeah, at any given time. Yeah. Any given time. And you, you, you work uh, with homeless people trying to find solutions, housing for them. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Tell us more about the organization. Sure, it's uh, it's the oldest organization in Southern California, a homeless services provider, and also the largest. As you mentioned, you were between 450 to 500 employees. It's a big operation. Um, we've been around since 1950, and um, it, it's bas basically it's the comprehensive services that we have, anywhere from our federally qualified health center. So, I mean, we know a lot of people who are homeless have health issues, many health issues, comorbidities, in fact, as well. And um, we have a therapeutic child care center that works with our kids. We have an employment center that helps in individuals gain marketable skills so with our, through our vocational training and then find jobs. And, and we know that with, with marketable skills come jobs and with jobs come income and then self-sufficiency, right? And then we have a whole shelter system that we have in place on any given night, we provide some level of shelter, anywhere from emergency shelter all the way up to affordable housing to about 3,000 individuals on any given night. Mm -hmm. So, and, afford, and we are developers of affordable housing as well. So it's the whole gamut um, in between there. Right. So we're, we're really blessed to have the comprehensive services that are necessary for, to help those who are on the streets. And, and it's not a cookie cutter approach because people are complex, human beings are complex. They, where they are in their journeys mm -hmm. are, are also very, very different and unique. So we, we are responsive to what their particular needs are. And you're located in San Diego? We are. Is that where all the, the housing and everything is in San Diego? In various, in various areas within San Diego. Okay. Um, so it could, we have our campus near our ballpark, actually, our baseball mm -hmm. ballpark, Petco Park. Um, that's our main campus, but we also have affordable housing in various other places throughout the, the county of San Diego. And Father Joe started the organization in San Diego, or is it New York? It, it, no, he started in San Diego. Oh. He was a New Yorker, interestingly enough. He oh. and I grew up. In the same area in the South Bronx. Oh, wow. um, he predated me by 15 years because he was 15 years my senior. We didn't know one another. Okay. We actually grew up within two blocks of one another in, oh. in the South Bronx. And that's interesting. Yeah. He didn't become a priest in New York. He, he uh, moved out to Los Angeles initially and then to San Diego and became a priest in San Diego. Um, just like I didn't become a deacon in New York either. I mm -hmm. moved out to San Diego and was I was a Dana deacon in San Diego, so we had almost similar paths if you think about it. Right. It's, and then he um, was tapped by the bishop back in 1982 mm -hmm. to basically grow this organization from an organization that was very small, providing very little shelter and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, to what it be, has it became to his credit, um, very comprehensive services that we that we have that we still continue. And, and so, um, and in time, um, I was tapped to, to lead this organization seven years ago. So it's mm -hmm. interesting, our paths, right, from the South Bronx right. um, to, to this place, right. uh, which now bears his name, Father Joe's Villages. Is he still alive? Or? He passed last year oh, at the age of 80, actually. Oh, yeah, okay. he just passed uh, less than a year ago. Yeah. yeah. To me, what's interesting, too, is that, I guess it makes sense. I mean, you're, you're providing housing in the most difficult place to provide housing right in the united states is california and housing costs are just Incredible. crazy right it is crazy i mean just this week um, there was a report that the median 
price of a house in San Diego has now climbed to $775,000, the wow. median price. $2,600 to $3,000 just to be is the average price of a rental. Right. Of, a, of a home. So th think about that. And, and then you couple it with the fact that um, it has a very low rental vacancy rate. We have a vacancy rate about about 3 to 3.2%, which means no sooner does an apartment come on the market, it gets it gets scooped up. In fact, they're bid bidding wars. So it's a toxic combination for our, for our, for those who we serve. The prices are very high and there isn't enough of it. And it's very expensive to live in San Diego. Yeah. So people fall onto onto the streets. And I've heard in general, I don't know if it's true, it, it, that there's a big movement towards pushing, just have everybody renting. And it's kind of like big corporations owning a lot of housing. And then even people that are working and can support themselves are like tending to rent more now. And um, to me, it's kind of scary just you know, you have the corporation having all this control, you know, but uh, do you see that out there especially? Like well, you, you see it somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, and whether it's it's, uh, it's re rental properties that are owned by corporations or just a feeling amongst young people that they can't afford to buy a home. And yeah. so as a result, they rent. I mean, the American dream was to own a home, if you remember um, right. back when. Mm -hmm. And it's not that that isn't still the dream, but it's just that it's out of sight of, of for certain populations, I mean, even young people who are educated and have right. good jobs because of where they are situated. I mean, if you're situated in a less expensive place like like um, Alabama, as an example, right. it's one right. thing. But if you're situated in a place where the median price of a home is seven hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, you may be college educated, have a good job, and have have decent income. But it's, it's that's expensive to try yeah. to so people resort to renting. I, you know, we go out every year to San Francisco for the Walk for Life. One year we went to Menlo Park and visited the seminary there and, and saw some of the high-tech places, did some videos out there. But, you know, the Menlo Park especially is just like insane housing prices. And I, I look around, I, I, like, I look on the horizon or whatever, I, I see all this space. I just wonder, why aren't they building out there? <laughs> what What's up? Isn't it just build more houses, prices come down? Or? <laughs> well, uh, yes, and, and it, it should be that easy just to build a house. <laughs> I'll give you an example. We, about five years ago, we determined that um, it was necessary. Yes, we've, we've been in the affordable housing market, builders of affordable housing for the last 20, 25 years, but we, we really decided that we wanted to get more into that aspect of it because while we provided a lot of shelter beds and shelter beds are important to take people all off the streets in the immediacy and start working with them. At the end of the day, a shelter is not a home. An apartment is a home and there isn't enough of it. So we said, you know what? Let's, we're gonna build out, we're gonna commit to building out 2000 units in the San Diego market. Quite an audacious goal. We didn't know how we would do it initially, all right, but with God's help, right? So we, we embarked on it from inception to the point where I just cut a ribbon on a 14-story, 407-home facility just this past month, all right? Five years. Mm. It took five years to come up with the planning process. It took five years to raise the money. I couldn't break ground until all the money was raised to $150 million endeavor. All right. Most of the 95% of it, the vast majority of it was is public funding, federal uh, tax credits, state tax credits, and, and some municipal funds as well. One philanthropic portion of $10 million. All right. A gentleman, Terry Caster is his name, great philanthropist and Catholic philanthropist in San Diego. He didn't want to name it after him. 
It's named St. Teresa of Calcutta Villa because he knew Mother Teresa. He worked with Mother Teresa. He has right. a love for Mother Teresa. And so how apropos that he wanted it named after her right. um, because she took people off the streets, which is what we do. Right. So I love the fact that it's called St. Teresa of Calcutta Villa. The largest of its kind ever in San Diego, ever for our population, took five years to do. And people at the beginning were telling me, why are you even doing this? It's going to take forever. People are suffering on the streets now. And I would say to them, yes, they're suffering on the streets now. and We need to take them off the streets as best we can. But at the end of the day, we don't have enough affordable housing. The housing system in, in California, it's clogged as a result. Since there, aren't, there isn't enough affordable housing, there isn't also enough shelter beds. So you pe leave people on the streets. San Diego has the seventh largest homeless population in the U.S., 4,000, approximately 4,000 individuals, half of whom are on the streets. So I said, if you, if you build affordable housing, you'll, you'll be able to free up some of the shelter beds, and that will allow us to take more people off the streets. So you, even though, yes, it takes a long time because of bureaucracy, a lot of permitting and the like, and raising the capital, um, you have to embark on it or you'll never get to the end goal. Mm -hmm. And so um, we, we've embarked that. And it's not just new construction. We also are purchasing motels mm -hmm. to, to refurbish them. And that's, you know, we were able to do that and within seven months have uh, we refurbished a motel into 83 spanking new units i mean permanent units with their own little you know space space wise their studios about 325 square feet not very large but very dignified they have their own living space with a kitchenette they have a bathroom uh, they have community space in the area it's a gated community I mean, it's very nice for, for, for our individuals. And, and these are individuals, actually, in this particular, that particular complex. Uh, they, it's, it's called permanent supportive housing because the individuals who reside there have some level of disability. So it could be, could be physical. It could be behavioral health um, challenges, maybe mental health challenges, substance use disorder challenges. And so they get a lot of comprehensive support. Uh, so it's not just a matter of just placing individuals into this housing. 96% of those who we place into housing retain their housing long term because of the ongoing comprehensive support. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely critical. And so when we say affordable housing, like these people would be paying rent, right? They, they rent. Would, yeah. yeah, they either pay rent because some of them work. Mm -hmm. And so we can, sometimes we help them find employment actually through our, through our employment and education center. Um, or they have SSI checks you know, mm -hmm. disability checks, as an example, they have vouchers from the city. Mm -hmm. So somehow rent is paid and yeah. it's, it's through that rent that we're able to uh, pay for the operations of the building and all those, and also the services that we provide. And is there a difficult, I know typically some of my family's been into rental properties and stuff and it, it's a big headache for them. And has it been that way for you all? Like, I don't know how to politely say it, but you know, if you have someone like maybe with some real mental health challenges and has that been a real difficult it thing? Can it yeah. can be, yeah. yeah. Especially when you mention mental health challenges. Yeah. Just the other day I get a call over the weekend and I'm and I'm told Deacon, one of our apartments burned out because the tenant left his stove on. And so thank God though, um, it was contained to this one apartment and no one was hurt. Right. And most important, right. that's the first thing I ask, yeah. was anyone hurt? Yeah. You know, no one was hurt. Yeah. And it was then my second question is, how many apartments did it affect yeah. and it had affected just that one individual apartment? But it was gutted. Yeah. It was gutted, yeah. right? So that's just an example right. where people sometimes leave the water on and as a result it floods 
a number of apartments and there's you have to mitigate that and so yeah they're the challenges fathers that we have and then like if someone is maybe doing criminal activity or something it's tough to get them to evict them right is it impossible almost or is it it's very difficult to get them evicted. You're absolutely yeah. right. And we encounter that as well. And you just have to go through the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, we keep, um, we keep our legal staff busy as yeah. a result of that, right? Trying to, and we don't, we don't like to put anyone on the street. Right. That's not, that's the antithesis of what, why we exist, right? We don't, we, we, we take people off the streets. But that, but at the end of the day, sometimes you're just left. You're left with no alternative right. to do just that. For right. we either because a person is of harm to him or herself or, or or others, and and that's just not right. Right. Yeah. And what is it like? How would you describe the famed California bureaucracy? I can't imagine. Maybe comparable to New York City, but I don't. How do you describe that bureaucracy you got to work with, and how do you work with it? I mean, what is well, you work with it. We must, all right. And, and so we work. I spend a lot of time working with the, uh, with the mayor or the governor's office or the city council members as well. Um, this is a priority for all of them, all right. And 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 so they say. I mean, because how can it not be a priority? It's front and center uh, homelessness, right? Yeah. And so um, that said. There is bureaucracy. I'll give you a, pr a prime example. That building to which I just re re referred, that St. of Calcutta, almost at the 11th hour when we needed to close escrow um, in order to be able to break ground, the, uh, we found that we got a call from the state. And they said, oh, by the way, we just realized that you've been granted two different $10 million grants um, for your project. And you can only have one. And, and we, we kind of shook our heads and said, well, what do you mean we're going to have one, right? And, and they said, well, yeah, this is, it was all bureaucratic as far as I'm concerned, right? And so I, I, the, the, we weren't going to leave. We weren't prepared to leave $10 million on the table. And so I have a, I have a great team. They're bright and they're passionate. And we got together, they got together with the legal team and we bifurcated the building. So actually that building is two legal entities in one. Mm. Why? So that we could have both $10 million grants. And we got it done, right? And so to look at it, you would never know that. Right. But think about what that did. In, in, as a result, there were additional resources. There were two closings and the expense associated with two closings, mm. all right? And that's what, that's what these, the bureaucracy does. We could have built that building. I mentioned it was $150 million. We could have built that building. We estimate uh, for maybe 10 to 20% less if you could get to that red tape and through the permitting and the regulatory faster right. um and and the and, and and those are tax dollars if right. you think about it those are tax dollars that could be saved right it could be used then for other buildings um so so i've mentioned that yeah I've, I've spoken to our state legislators and used that as an example and just recently i was I, the governor uh, the governor had two um, individuals come down into our, our building and i mentioned that to them and they kind of looked at me they took notes right and they said they were going to go back and look into that and i hope that they do and there's there are a lot of those examples that exist on the books and you have to scratch your head and, and ask why right what's the good reason for for having them right so yeah but you mentioned that everybody wants this so i imagine that does help a lot that it's it's a good work and everybody can recognize the value of it especially maybe people in big fat bureaucracies and government that's maybe why they're there to help people you know so is there that kind of working together maybe that mo a common motivation that helps it get through as well i mean it's just not two two groups two factions whatever. right 
Right. Yeah, they're like, one guy's just not trying to make a lot of money, get as much as he can. They're trying to help people. So I think a lot of people could get on board with that to make it happen. Right, right. and yeah. so there's collaboration as a result. Yeah. Um, and uh, there is, it's also, there's a competitive aspect of it, obviously. There's just so much money to go around. And yeah. so what I'm doing, others are doing as well. Right. And so we're all competing for the same dollars within the same pot. So there is that aspect of right, it. Right. Um, but of, of late, because of COVID as an example, there've been a lot more dollars that have been funneled down mm -hmm. um, to, um, to help ho with the homelessness issue. And so that's gonna, you know, I've, I've always, I always tell myself, my, my staff, I should say, we need to seize the opportunity because these dollars are not gonna last forever, right? And we, mm -hmm. so now is the time really to strike while the iron is hot, hot so to speak, and, and really get, get as much of the funding as possible in order to, to help with our, our various endeavors, whether it be the shelter programs or, or, the, or the affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the homelessness problem in general in America. What are some of the stats, numbers on that? Well, the, it's an issue across the United States. You know, we have in this country, the United States, we have 580,000 homeless, 580,000, 40% of whom are on the streets and unsheltered. The others have some level of shelter, mm -hmm. but they're still homeless, right? In this great country of ours, mm -hmm. you know, that we should be ashamed that, that we have that many people who are on the streets. 28% of those who are homeless uh, of that number are in California. So California has a big um, homeless situation. Not surprisingly, New York has the highest homeless population. For one city. For one city, yeah. yeah. And then it's followed by, by LA, then by Seattle. What are right. those numbers? You know, those um, New York has about 85,000, give mm -hmm. or take. I mean, they'll hold me exactly to these numbers, but about 85,000. California has, uh, excuse LA. me, um, um, LA. LA has more along the lines of about 55,000 okay. or so. Then it, it drops quite a bit um, when you with to Seattle. Seattle has about 15,000. Wow. And then you come back into California where you have the Bay Area and you have uh, San Jose and you have uh, Oakland and San Francisco. Well, they're the next ones in that order. So Seattle's um, more than San Francisco. It is, okay. it is, yeah. And you can see it, uh, you mentioned when you go to San Francisco, you can see it, it's, Seattle's the same way. It's very much in, in your face. And then it drops down to San Diego where it's the seventh largest. And we have about 8,000, um, uh, half of whom are on, 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 the, on the streets. The, of those who are unsheltered across the US, by the way, 50% um, of them, 50% of the unsheltered are in California, mm. right? So that's a, but California has quite the quite a number who are unsheltered. I mean, when you think about fifty percent of those who are unsheltered in within the United States, fifty percent of them in California itself. So, right. yeah, these are big numbers. What happens? I just was reading a news story where uh, I think it was it was either Portland or Seattle that was making these greater efforts to clean up homelessness and. That's, that's some kind of terminology like they use. What is what happens when a city decides to do that generally? What does that look like practically? Um, well, usually it, it manifests in 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 enforcement, basically. Uh -huh. All right, and it depends on the city. But some cities do choose enforcement. There are laws that that. Um, preclude you from doing that if you don't have shelter beds though, right? So, okay. so there was a, there was a, a, um, 
um, actually a court case out of Boise that basically for the, that applies to the entire United States, whereby if you're, if you're going to force someone off the street, you have to be able to provide a shelter bed. Otherwise, they have no, no option right. and, and you can't do that. But um, when, when enforcement is utilized, then it's, it's I, I don't recommend enforcement. You're criminalizing homelessness, which does, it doesn't work for the individual, doesn't work for the community. You can't keep someone in a jail, jail, yeah. jail cell very long and, um, and, you, and you haven't done anything for their, their foundational issue. A right. fundamental issue, right? So, what are you really accomplishing? Except digging a, a bigger hole for the individual, because now they have a record, all right. Uh -huh. And if you the citations that that keeps them from being able to get an apartment when a, when a, a landlord mm -hmm. tries to do do a, re, a credit check mm -hmm. or a criminal investigation, and then they see that an individual has been in jail or has these citations. It, it keeps the landlord from from renting to that individual, right? So you've only dug a bigger hole for this individual. So you have it. So I mean, we advocate. We at Father Joe's Villages, we advocate. Yes, let's help people off the streets. It's you know, it's not not just for people to be on the streets, right? It's also um, it's not helping anybody, either the individual or the community. Um, some individuals actually can't help themselves. They're they're mired in such a level of behavioral health challenges, mental health issues, as an example, where they can't help themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the civil liberties in our society are sacrosanct, and, and well, they should be. I mean, we value our civil liberties. And yet it isn't, it is what, it isn't humane to leave people on the streets who cannot help themselves, right? So right. we have to come up with a prudent way of being a help being able to help people off the streets who can't help themselves, yeah. right, uh, without uh, without um, stripping them of their civil liberties, in a sense, and, and that, that's hard. That's hard to do. It's a challenge. So, so in answering your your question, you know, when people say you know they've come and they and they've cleaned up, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean they have really addressed the issue of homelessness, mm -hmm. because just enforcement right. and cleaning up doesn't accomplish right. that. And what? percentage of people on the streets do have the behavioral mental health challenges? I can tell you that in, in San Diego, um, we have about 40%, about 37% who have some, some level of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And then about 30% have substance use issues. And some have both. You know, and so um, those are big percentages if you think about it. And these are individuals who, again, don't necessarily when you extend your hand, don't necessarily accept it. And yeah. so what do, you, what do you do for them? I mean, as an example, we started at Father Joe's Villages back in 2019, the year before COVID hit, we started street health. Never been done in San Diego. I mean, we're always trying to come up with innovative ways of addressing the situation. We know that in 30% in of those who are on the streets don't access health care uh, in a typical brick and mortar fashion you know, traditional medicine. And so you have to go out to them, meet them where they are, which is what our clinicians started doing. They started meeting them to bind, to bind wounds, to dispense um, medication, as an example, to try to build relationship and try to get people then to come in for, for services and not just health services, but, but also shelter services and housing services. Um, and that takes time. It takes a lot of tenacity um, and, and, and to stick with it. This year, we now have added psychiatric clinicians to the team mm. because of what I mentioned before. So many people are, are, yeah. are plagued with uh, behavioral health issues. And um, again, meeting them where they are. That's the thing. You got to meet them where they are. If they don't want to come into a shelter, well, what other alternative 
can we have as a community to be able to help those individuals who don't want to come into a shelter and you may not have an apartment for them, right? So what else, how else can you help these individuals um, without just leaving them on the street? And is that a big percentage of people that don't want shelters, you think? Or? Um, it, it, it's, it, it is, there is a percentage there. I mean, most people do want shelter. Yeah. Most people, put it this way, most people want help. Yeah. Wouldn't say they want shelter. A lot of individuals can't come into shelter or they say they can't come into shelter because of past experiences, you know, trauma that they've had in their lives. Um, maybe because they're seniors and, and some shelters can't accommodate seniors. Maybe they're families. And some uh, shelters can't accommodate families, uh, units yeah. as well. So there are so, so many things that are at play in the lives of these individuals. It's, it's co-occurring situations. It isn't, you know, it, it isn't some, with some it might be, well, I fell into hard, onto hard times and I fell onto the street. And that's one thing. Within, with other individuals, yeah, employment could be a piece of it, but their health may be, Maybe an aspect, and even on the health side, there might be comorbidity. So, so maybe an individual has high blood pressure, but they also have high blood sugar, and maybe some other things at play as well. And then maybe they have children. Okay, and it's the issue with how do you care for the children, mm -hmm. right? While while you try to find employment, and the challenges to that, and health and your child care, and so that's why with Father, at Father Joe's Villages, it's such a great situation because of the across the board comprehensive services so that, you know, we, yeah, we'll care for your children, right? We have the psychologists and, and the teachers um, that are necessary there because these kids um, who've been living on the streets, they typically uh, are delayed academically, emotionally, socially. So how do you work with them, right? Where the fam families can feel comfortable in dealing with their own health issues and, and trying to find employment, right? Because they know their kids are safe. Um, and how do you help the parents build familial bonds because a lot of them have never learned how to parent mm -hmm. right and so they they don't have that role modeling in a sense and how do you work i mean there's just so many aspects of it father yeah and i just saw a story like the last few months i think they've had like 240,000 uh, legal immigrants cross the border and are you seeing a lot of that is that people those people part of the uh, the numbers of the homelessness that you're counting and because San Diego is pretty close to the border. It is. It? <laughs> is it? Oh, it is. It's right it is. there. Almost. Yeah. And we do have a lot of um, immigrants coming in yeah. and refugees coming in. For the most part, um, they don't, they uh, don't touch the homelessness situation. Okay. Because they are cared for uh, by other organizations. For, for instance, Catholic Charities oh. work with the refugees down oh, really? in, in, in San Diego. Um, and do some fall into homelessness? Some do. Oh. But for the most part, it's really as they come through the border, Catholic Charities uh, works with them. Okay. And in order to situate them, not necessarily in San Diego, maybe situate them in other cities, as an yeah. example, because they're programs that are in place uh, from the gov government programs yeah. um, to, to address that. Yeah. One time when I was out there for the Walk for Life, we're getting ready to do the the rally and everything. You know, we televise it. And I just started talking to these three or four, like, guys in their early 20s. You know, they, they were homeless. Um, but they were, you know, they, they were well-spoken and everything. They enjoyed smoking pot and things. And they, they were actually lived in Birmingham for a while. And they hopped trains to get to... California. I said, why did you, what drew you out here? He said, there's more services out here, medical services and things. And so they, they came, but it, 
it was um I forgot why I brought that up, but it was, uh, I remember, because they, they seemed like they were able to work, you know, we're having a normal kind of conversation and everything, but maybe their issue was substance addictions and stuff, but... Um, Could be. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I'm often asked, by the way, whether the climate and the services um, bring people from out of yeah. state into San Diego, and that's a, que that's a question that we ask. Hey, well, every, every year there's a point in time count that's done where about 1,500 volunteers at the end of January, go out on one night and they canvas the canyons and so forth. And they count the number of who are, who are homeless on the street, in shelters, in RVs, and cars, and so forth. And it's not a 100% accurate count, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But from year to year, at least it's a basis, relatively, it's a basis of being able to determine how many homeless you have on, on that given night. And that's used actually by, by HUD. Uh, to so that the city can be a lot of federal dollars. So it's an important count. Um, but in any case, one of the questions that's asked on a survey when, when people go out to be counted is um, whether when they fell into homelessness, where were they? And 85%, typically in every, every single year, about 85% say that when they fell into homelessness, they were in San Diego. Mm -hmm. So the majority are do fall into homelessness in San Diego. People think it's the other way around that that people migrate there, yeah. uh, having been homeless elsewhere, and that's and that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And that and that number stands; those percentages stand pretty much the same if you if you compare them in other cities like New York. Like you would say, yeah. who want to be homeless in New York? And yet it's because those those are there's there's a level of of um, transitory, let's say, right. um, it, within within the homeless population. So. Most most have been in San Diego when they fall into homelessness. And I, I've wondered sometimes too, just about like with the immigration issue or something, or can't can we have a system to have people have whatever cars, documentation to work in this area of the country, and after a handful of years, they can you know live wherever they want or something. But just to because it seems like we're having now, and I I keep hearing this like an employment crisis, like. Like even the network, you know, I think there's like 30 positions unfilled right now. I was talking to a police department and they said they were having a lot of trouble filling these spots and stuff. And it it seems like, I know, I, I just think sometimes like American ingenuity, you know, if, if we're really motivated, we could maybe come up with some solution, better solutions. And and who wants, I don't know, you know, I, I know it's it's hard to live in different parts of the country and maybe have family in one area and it's complicated, but um, it seemed like we have a great need for people to work. You know, you know, I we have a guy from the Midwest and he said they were, you know, Burger King was closing down on one day a week. They didn't have people to, to work and it's like, we got all these people. I know not all of them are able to work, but I don't know, it seems like we can do something to help distribute the employee workforce. Hey, workforce. Well, the great, you know, it's been dubbed the great resignation. And right. that's the literally millions of individuals who have chosen just to quit their jobs. Yeah. And, and, and either because they've, they've gone off to other employment that maybe has been paying better um, or allowed more flexibility because now again, people want remote work a lot of right. times, you know, that's this whole, this whole pandemic has really changed the, the landscape as far as labor and employment is concerned. And it's across the various industries. I know we have about 100 open 
positions at Father Joe's Villages wow. as, as we speak. And that, produces, that just creates a burden on the existing staff because yeah. now they have to work even longer. Right. And, it's a, and that's a stressful situation. I mean, when you work with type of, our type of populations, it can be very stressful and um, emotional and otherwise. And so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not uh, immune to it. We have Father Joe's Villages. I mean, it's just across all the industries. Mm. It's just, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that that will change. And yeah. I think this will be a transition period year, uh -huh. um, but I think it's going to be it, it, it'll change. It um, it has to change. Right. <laughs> so so right. um, because a lot of like you say, a lot of businesses are shutting down. Yeah. As a yeah. result, you know, I mean, yeah. we can't afford to shut down. God forbid. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it, it it yeah, it's challenging. I get asked a lot, and I wonder what to do myself sometimes. When you're out in the street walking, somebody asks you for some money. What do you do? Mm. <laughs> also, another question I'm asked. I, I would recommend that you that you not give that person money. I would recommend that you you find your local homeless services provider, uh -huh. and that you help them um, mm -hmm. with the work that they do, because they are actually um, doing more than just giving a meal to an individual. Yeah. Yes, the individual has to eat. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's basic. I mean, at Father Joe's Villages, by the way, we serve over a million meals a year. Mm. Two dining rooms, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm. There's been additional food insecurity during COVID. And so we've increased actually our, our volume. But um, so meals are very, very important. They're basic. Um, and so I know your heart goes out for the individual and the immediacy that person needs a meal. They're usually providers in the area that will provide that, right? Mm. And provide that and more. Because while you may provide the meal for that moment in time, a few bucks for the moment in time, what happens come the next meal? What happens comes the next yeah. day, right? Yeah. So that and also you don't know whether the individual will use it for a meal or not, right? right? That's, yeah. that's the other aspect of it. And so um, that's why I always recommend that people find the nearest homeless services provider and, and help them and also direct that individual to, to that place um, where they could mm -hmm. be, be helped in a, in, in a bigger way. Um, and if you and if you feel totally compelled that you can't pass a, 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 out, you know, can't pass that individual, then I would recommend is you invite that person into the nearest store, um, you know, supermarket right, or whatever, right. and 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 then just buy them something right. that it's actual food right. that they'll have to. It's interesting sometimes when you offer to do that. Let me just buy you something from the store. They'll say, No, no, I just want the money. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. And let, let's talk about your personal story. You worked for Citibank. I did for yeah. many years in the heart of Manhattan. I did living yeah. the dream there and uh, making exorbitant profits there. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was in college, I think it was like seventeen percent interest on a credit card. Yeah. <laughs> well, that wasn't all going into my pocket, but I, I was a vice president <laughs> of Citibank for for yeah. for many, many years in in various yeah. of the divisions. Um, it's how I started out of school. Actually, I was a graduate of New York University, and and that's where I uh, yeah, that's where I worked for many many years. Yeah, yeah. tell us about that whole experience. I mean. Um, now you're a deacon in the church. You're doing this great work. Um, tell us though. Tell us a little about your life. And yeah, you well, got I, where you're at. I will. So I so I, I grew up. I think I may have mentioned I grew up in the South Bronx. Uh, my wife and I actually grew up in the same projects down in the right. South Bronx. I, I've known her since I was 12, and this year we'll be celebrating our 45th wedding anniversary. So yeah. it's been a long time. She's my rock, and um, we have two children now, and and some grandchildren as well, some grandsons. So we're excited about that. Um, you were born we, in Puerto Rico? No, I was or? born in New York, actually. Okay. I'm a New Yorkican, okay. 
But my parents, as were her parents, she's Puerto Rican as well, were born on the island. And they immigrated up to New York. My father was a migrant worker in New Jersey when he first came. And my mother was a seamstress. Um, and then they met in New York and got married. Um, and um, But yes, I, so I was with Citibank um, yeah. many years. I was recruited out to San Diego to be one of the senior executives for a conglomeration of newspapers. It was headquartered out in, in La Jolla, actually, called Copley Newspapers. Mm -hmm. And they owned papers around the country. Um, and then the, uh, that was privately owned. So the owner at one point decided he wanted to divest himself of all the interests. And, uh, and I, I was part one of the, on, on the team that, that helped him with that. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, I had been ordained a deacon, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so, um, as I discerned after that experience, I discerned, well, where, where, where did God want me next? And whether he wanted me to stay in the corporate life, um, or I decided that, you know, I would do parish work. And I did parish work, actually, uh, our parish, Mary Star of the Sea in La Jolla. Um, the parish work for four years, very different, as you can imagine, huh, than what I have been doing. Um, and um, all the black cars were gone. You know, I remember I used to come down from Citibank, get into a black car and, 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 and go home in the evening right now. Yeah. Um, not the case when you're doing parish work, <laughs> um, nor do you need it. And, and, and um, so the... Um, so I did that for four years, and then this job came along, and they um, they asked me whether I'd be interested in doing it. Actually, mm -hmm. um, I was approached by by the board chair of the time um, because of my background, and it's a great combination, Father. I, I'm convinced that all the time at Citibank and and elsewhere was really in preparation for this because this this organization, Father Joe's Villages, is very much a business. I mean, if you think of what I just mentioned here, the health center and the, the, the child care and the employment and housing, developing housing, we also have a retail business because I have auction houses, right? We have retail store, uh, thrift stores as well. All the proceeds are for the benefit of, of the services that we have. These are all separate businesses, big businesses. It's a nonprofit. It. And it's a nonprofit, yeah, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we, it, it needs to be run as a business. Right? Yeah. So all that business, uh, yeah. the acumen actually um, um, that I harnessed over the years, let's say, really come into play here. And, and, yeah. and, they, and actually, I get excited about that aspect of it, right? But then there's the pastoral piece of it and what yeah. we do. Um, so, you know, that being a deacon, I think, um, so it's a great melding, uh, of the two. I just feel blessed yeah. in, in, in that regard. Yeah. I think that's great. I know we've had a guest one time on the network. He, he would help like Catholic nonprofits get their business plan and order and all that just so they can work. So it can survive, you know, and just whatever good Catholic work they're doing. And I, I thought that is so great. And America should do that the best. You know, we should be really good at that is you know being able to have an organization functions right but so you grew up you weren't well off right <laughs> you no. went to DRK university is that that's a public university i guess or it, no it's a private university private, university okay. yeah even though it's new york you know you have the mm -hmm. these named universities and you think they're they're state-run universities right. but they're really not new york is a private university yeah, yeah. Were you a good student? Uh, I was a good student. I was I was good at knocking on doors, and when I say that, of organizations to get grants and uh, financial aid, uh, and so <laughs> uh, very early on, I learned to do that um, in order to f to be able to fund fund myself through through the college through the college yeah. years. My parents had no means to be able to do that. I mean, they were great. What they instilled in us, they instilled in us a few things. They instilled in us um, to be hardworking, to get an education. They said that's the way. 
mm-hmm. to really do well in this country, get an edu- even though they each had about a sixth grade education, all right? Mm-hmm. But they, they, and they had to, they were the oldest within their respective families, and so they had to go out to work, actually, when they were very young. Um, and, but they instilled in us an education. They, they instilled in us a love of country, mm-hmm. of, uh, of being able to, of love of family, of course, and, and our faith. Mm-hmm. That was absolutely paramount, you know, having the faith and, and, and grounding everything in, in, in love of God and, and love of one another. And so that was all what they instilled in us. But other, other, the rest of it, like being able to fund your educa- the education at New York University, it was basically, yeah, as going out through, the one thing is that this country has great um, organizations out there that fund, you know, individuals who don't have the means right. in order to be able to go to good schools. And right. so um, the same thing was with my wife. Uh, she got some excellent educations as well. Um, and by basically by, by going out and seeking the funds, yeah. All right, and then uh, you, it was like a early on you started working for Citibank? Or? Very, right out of school, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, after I graduated, so I was uh, just early, worked early your 20s. just worked way up to, to vice president? I did, yeah, I did. Wow. Um, Is that the vice president, or are there many vice presidents? There are many, many vice okay. presidents. <laughs> Citibank has many divisions yeah. and has many vice presidents right. um, and um, of, of various groups, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're coming of age in the early 70s then? Yeah, yeah. it was the early to mid-70s. And how did you keep the faith I and mean, that's not a seem like everybody's hippie and you're, smoking pot and whatever <laughs> no you're right you're, yeah. you're absolutely right and i experienced that in my in 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 those who with whom i went to school actually mm-hmm. and some of them actually got into a lot of trouble as a result of yeah. it um but i have to tell you um and again the same thing with my wife because she had a similar similar situation um we were our faith was extremely important to us okay. and and that and that grounded us it really grounded yeah. us um the um, um that and, and family i mean the combination of the two we came each from intact families right and and we and we had our our uh, our faith and the combination of the two is what what got us through i didn't get into i mean i've never smoked marijuana my wife hasn't right. either right. pot my, my yeah. i've never gotten to any of that stuff um it's not what we were about, yeah, you right. know. Um, so again, I give the glory to God. I always mm-hmm. give the, Him the glory. But um, and and so that's why it's so important to give back. It's so important to make a difference in the lives of individuals because we've been so very blessed in yeah. the whole process. Who would have thought that two kids from the South Bronx would have wound up in a place like La Jolla? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's right. incredible the way God works. And yeah. but it, but there's a reason for it, right? And and it wasn't for ourselves. Um, and that's what we have to remind ourselves, not for ourselves, it's because of what, you know, what he wants us to do for others to make a difference um, in the lives of others. So, yeah. And you're a deacon, you preach at the I parish preach. and stuff. Yeah, what I are, preach at the parish. What are some of the themes? You take all this <laughs> in the melting pot of your life. What do you preach on today? What do you see today? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, basically the relationship that we should each have with, with our Lord, right? Uh-huh. Uh, first and foremost, sometimes, you know, I want to get up and I, I, you could probably relate to this as well. I mean, in your preaching, I mean, we're all, we're preaching about the same thing. Um, uh-huh. Each and every single time, right? Uh-huh. Of course, we we use different stories, right? Mm-hmm. And and the gospels the gospels are great that way because right. the gospels are so rich, um, and you can you, you, every you can have a scripture verse or scripture passage and preach on it one year, and then next next year the very same passage, and you'll preach shows how the spirit is working in your right. life, right? At the right. time, and yes, you have all that, but at the end of the day, what we're preaching is relationship with our Lord, 
uh-huh. right? Just falling in love with our Lord and the relationship with our Lord um, and, how, and, and how what we should do is give him glory. Um, and so we, you, you know, we, we are on this earth for no other reason but to give him glory. And, right. and so the situation, wherever he has you, whether it's with family, so with your, with your spouse or with your children or with your coworkers or whatever the interactions are, everything should be gear, geared to give him, giving him glory. If we got up each and every single day and throughout the day remembered that constantly, Right? And we're all human beings. We, we, we don't always remember that, right? But we would lead our lives in such a different way right. so that when we, when we encounter with one another, we encounter with one another, whatever the situation may be, if we remind ourselves, you know what? This encounter is meant to give God glory. Right. Okay? All right. If we just say it to ourselves, we, must be, we would be in a better place. Now we're human beings. And, and, and I, first and foremost, I fail constantly throughout yeah, the day right yeah, and and we yeah. and we do but um but tomorrow's another day and yeah. you try you try again yeah let's think about that's what theologians tell us yeah god created the world right to manifest his glory to show forth that glory so. yeah yeah that's right oh deacon jim thank you so much for talking with us this has been oh great. thank you this has been great i mean we just yeah. happen to come run run across one another this morning and it was a god thing right it was and, and yeah. so thank you for yeah. for the invitation yeah. um pray pray for us out out in san diego i'll, I'll keep your ministry in my prayers as well thank you mm-hmm.